a new episode of Know Your Carrots. Each week, we bring you a new guest to discuss engineering and culture. We go deep on how they started at Instacart, what they do day to day, and how they have fun. You can find us online at tech.instacart.com, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It goes a long way to help other people discover our podcast, so thanks. Hi, um, I'm Victor. I'm here with Gordon, and this is the uh, third episode of Know Your Carrots. Uh, and we're talking about uh, life as a software developer, about things that we are interested in, and uh, how we work and how we have fun. And um, hi, Gordon. Hi, Victor. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm good. I'm very excited. Um, uh, so uh, this time we we actually have a list of topics that we wanted to discuss. Thanks to Gordon. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I actually wanted to start on the same note I did before. So um, Gordon, are you like local to uh, Bay Area? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm down in Mountain View actually. So, oh nice. And I commute up to Instacart uh, three days, four days a week. Nice. Uh, have you been always live, uh, living in the Bay Area? Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up actually in a town called Los Altos that's right next to Mountain View. Uh, and then I went to college for four years in Ohio, and then I moved back to the Bay Area. Did you did you went to college for like so uh, computer science or engineering? No, no. no? I, I, so I went to college actually. My undergraduate degree is in geology, of all things. Oh, and, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. And then after graduating, I got into, uh, I had been doing some animation in, in college as well, just for fun. And so I came and got a job in San Francisco at a multimedia company doing animation for them. And uh, while I was there, uh, this is a game. And so I uh, interacted with the programmers who were making the game. And I said, oh, well, that looks like more fun. And so then just doing animation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, so I got into programming from... Uh, having a friend who was there doing that work and then working with them and then uh, landing my first programming job on a, on a game. Uh, that was pretty straightforward uh, stuff and, and then uh, improving my skills from there. Eventually I got, you know, I went to graduate school for software engineering uh, later on, but I was uh, self-taught for, uh, for, for a while there. Nice. So, what what was your first language? What what, what was the first uh, oh, game like that so you were working on? So the first language was something. In, it was is a language called Lingo, which is kind of an English style language that was used in a in a program called Macromedia Director. But uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up doing a bunch of Perl uh, because I wanted to. I want. I basically wanted to be able to build websites, mm -hmm. uh, dynamic websites, and that was the the language uh, at, at the, the time, time for yeah. doing that. Yeah. Perl oh, it was like right before the PHP came along and like yeah, started, about yeah. the same time as PHP. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, it was just a way of getting dynamic sites up. This this is cool. Yeah, like I never tried. Like I never did anything with game development. Yeah. Uh, what was like? What was interesting? What was like annoying? Maybe or like. So th this was not. This was using a pretty high level framework. So Director is a framework that uh, that allows you to use something that's kind of like an IDE for game development. So it took care of you know painting the pixels to the screen mm -hmm. and. Uh, doing composition and and uh, other stuff, they they had sort of very high level notions of of how to uh, uh, make this game. Um, so it wasn't sort of the low level game 
the C++ programming that you might be mm -hmm. imagining. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, we have some people who actually uh, had like the past that was like the C++ and game uh -huh. dev. I think Doug used to uh -huh. work, yeah, uh, as a as a actually like hardcore game dev like in uh, AAA studio. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I think um, I think he was working on the uh, NBA 2000 something, 2012 or 2010 or something. Uh -huh. Yeah, like several years ago. Very but, cool. Yeah. Um, so, how did you? I heard that you had like very exciting story how you ended up like working in Instacart. Can you share that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, me, and some friends had a startup uh, that we uh, three years before we joined Instacart. I think is maybe when we started mm -hmm. working on that, and uh, we managed to get some venture funding for it and we grew the startup to several million users as a mobile application for your wedding where all the pictures that all of your guests took would show up in a timeline and uh, had a, a bunch of features and chat and other stuff that you might imagine a lot lots of filters and whatnot mm -hmm. um, we also uh, when we were working on this thing we, we worked out initially we worked out of a place called the hacker dojo down in Mountain View uh -huh. And at the time, Brandon, at one point, uh, showed up there. This is before he started Instacart. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, I don't know, a, a couple of months later, he happened to bump into our founder in mm -hmm. Palo Alto and uh, realized that we were doing a, a, an app for for the wedding and was like, oh man, I was going to build one of those for myself because I'm getting married, so I'll just use your app instead. <laughs> so he was one of the early users of mm -hmm. the wedding party app. And so that's how he knew about us. And when we uh, were uh, shopping the company around for sale, uh, Instacart was one of the companies that was potentially interested in us. And so we came in and we found that like, you know, mm -hmm. it was a really good fit. And so uh basically the wedding party crew joined instacart um uh when instacart was growing like crazy it was a uh, there there have been some times in instacart's history yeah. right where where it's been growing really quickly and and i think it was in 2016 was one of those times uh and so we came on as a as a whole company into instacart that's pretty exciting yeah. so those people are still here so tony uh, uh is is one of them uh hamani and Kaushik uh, and myself. And, and there was another woman who was with us for a year and a half, maybe, uh, Stephanie. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think I uh, saw her like, when I just joined. She le I think she left like yeah, some yeah. time ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe about a year ago. Mm -hmm. So what do you do right now and what you were doing like uh, all this time with Instacart? Yeah, so I joined. It wasn't clear what I was going to do when I joined uh, Instacart. So we talked with Brandon. And uh, I had been doing a bunch of mobile development and uh, also, you know, back-end stuff for Ruby on Rails and, and some, you know, analytics stuff for us and uh, and also running the engineering team. So, mm -hmm. like, well, what am I, you know, what am I going to do here? Uh, so, we decided that I would join the catalog team. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, I joined, I was working with Brandon, who was running it at the time, uh, and... So I worked on the catalog team for about six months, um, and then 
then Brandon asked if I would uh, lead the infra team. And so I switched over and I did that for a year. And then I decided that I wanted to go back to being a, an IC. And so then I went back to being on the catalog team. So my experience at Instacart is split pretty evenly between the catalog team and, and the infrastructure team. Yeah, and the, his point is to ask you what you like better since you moved back to being IC. <laughs> <laughs> well, infrastructure is really interesting, but uh, but uh, being a manager wasn't really where my heart was at. I wanted to sort of dive into the technology. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I know you're really passionate about uh, distributed system. How, yeah. how does that play with like the catalog? I think like that's yeah. very good application to what, what you're working on today. Yeah, so I, I think what happened was... so. Our catalog started out, so uh, Instacart itself started out as a big mono uh, monolithic application, and yeah. uh, catalog was one of the first uh, services to split off of that, and the reason was that uh, at the time, catalog would uh, accidentally take down the storefront, so you know we would be doing these big operations, and, and somehow that would slow the database down enough that the customers were impacted, mm-hmm. and so we realized that, that, that we needed a separation there, and and uh, that was about at the time that I joined was right when catalog was just starting to be separated from the rest of the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, as catalog has grown, it's become harder for like an individual database or an individual service running to actually uh, uh, do all the work that we need mm-hmm. to do in catalog. And so we've been breaking it up uh, along um, sort of logical boundaries where Mm -hmm. things, for example, like the availability of an item on the storefront is, uh, there's a system called the item availability system that uh, that calculates whether an item should be available. And so the types of things that go into that are Mm -hmm. whether shoppers have recently uh, seen the item on the storefront, what the retailer tells us about whether it's on the storefront or Mm -hmm. not because they send us files every night. Uh, and then there can also be overrides that are added by our operations team. So they can say that, you know, this thing should not ever show up on the storefront for whatever reason they decide, or that it should be showing. For example, mm-hmm. uh, this is an early requirement when I joined that, like, uh, some retailers wanted hot dogs, you know, to always show up for Fourth of July week, even if they're out of stock, uh, because uh, it's. Uh, it, you know, something that they want people to see on their storefront. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's one example of, of one of the subsystems within the catalog system. Uh, and we broke that out uh, into these services that kind of run on their own. And, was, you know, last year we started introducing Kinesis Streams into our system so that we could basically re- have information that came in from retailers uh, be put almost immediately onto a variety of Kinesis streams that then would be processed mm-hmm. by these services that uh, um, that could react to them and, and, and be have ownership over the data that they specifically are, were in charge of. Uh, that's not how we're moving forward, uh, ultimately. <laughs> so but that, is, that is a version of a distributed system that we currently have right now. Yeah, um, so we have like the Kinesis is just like the the this huge pop up system mm-hmm. that we constantly don't manage, right? And mm-hmm. like all the data that we that came from um, our partners, they basically converted them to streams of events. Yep. And then we uh, have like another stri- like uh, 
streams of events that we basically consume after that yeah in in the, uh in the batches mode probably uh and drive it over databases like yeah yeah and the output of the catalog system as a whole, the, the catalog domain, is a, a set of data that goes out of Kinesis Stream to search. Uh, it, it, we also have a legacy system that we haven't completely deprecated yet, but mm -hmm. the, but basically about half the data goes out of the Kinesis Stream, and, and we, we want to move to the rest of the data also going out of the Kinesis Stream. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's how our catalog uh, uh, currently works. Um, and. What's interesting about that is that we basically like so so catalog. If you think of it as uh, like kind of like a data store, like we we've deconstructed it uh, into a variety of uh, you know verticals, right? So we've we've got you know item level data being processed one way and and uh, availability uh, being processed one way, and then some information goes to the products team, and then the products team processes that stuff uh, separately. And um, we have, uh, I don't actually know, but let's call it five databases. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we also use Redis to maintain a, a materialized cache of some of this information that the file ingestion system uses to act on very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and each one of these uh, systems came about because we were pushing up against some sort of a scaling problem yeah and 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 we thought that we you know we needed the redis cache because we weren't able to uh query the database quickly enough but each one of these also comes with its own problem uh which is that we're then in charge of maintaining this materialization so mm -hmm. we have uh you know a variety of what amounts to caches that that can get out of date and are incrementally updated but aren't always updated quite correctly or we uh you know we introduce a bug which introduces a bug into the cache and then you know if the, the cache doesn't get expired quickly enough uh, then then there's a, a a fault in in the cache so our whole system is big and uh somewhat deconstructed mm -hmm. um and we realized that like a lot of our problems come from that so we we shift these events around and we uh and we update things in place based on those events but again like if if we don't react to an event because of some fault in our system then the, the information doesn't get updated and when it doesn't get updated then it's basically in a corrupt state okay and uh and if we don't hear another event about that then it remains in a corrupt state and so we have data that's not a faithful representation of the data that we've been provided and that's what we're actually shipping out uh to the store and so what you're trying how, how are you trying to solve this right now yeah so the way that we're that we're solving this is, well so about a year ago we realized that one way of solving this is to do recompute so if we have good source data and uh a reliable um uh, good source data and an algorithm through which we would run it to get the output from the catalog system that we would want. Uh, well, wouldn't that be great? We could just, you know, take our source data, mm -hmm. run a build, and and get the output of, of the system. Um, and so we recognized that was a that would be a good thing to do, but we simply just didn't know how to actually do it. 
we uh, why is that because of the size of the data you had at hand yeah we we thought that we couldn't act on all the data that we had and sort of more practically we had a system that was up and running and yeah it had some problems and we we spent a fair amount of time like uh, doing bug fixes and trying to move from one representation of data to another as use cases come up yeah. but uh to motivate the, the, the movement from that catalog to a different catalog where we do recomputation, you know, uh, when, you, when you look at that, what that ends up looking like is, is introducing like a Spark system or something. Mm -hmm. right? And so then the question is, okay, so, so then what do you do with a Spark system? Do you, do you write a bunch of Java code or do you, you know, write a bunch of Python code? Everything that we have so far is written in Ruby. Uh, how do you store all of the data that you have to be able to operate on it? How do you uh, output that data at the end? Uh, and so not only would it be a big refactoring of the logic that we have in our system mm -hmm. currently, but it would also be a large infrastructural refactoring to introduce all of those new systems. Other dependencies that yeah. we don't know yet how to manage and like how to even write. Yeah. You know, like how, how big of a Spark cluster do we need? How can we, you know, uh, does anybody know Scala? Can we use Scala with Spark on this stuff? You know, and and so uh, we realized that you know if we could do a fair amount of this work in SQL, then we would have less that we needed to change. It would be declarative, and it would be uh, sort of easier to reason about as well. A little less code, um, and so. Uh, we we started to see like there's a there's a thing called Athena out there. Uh, Google has a thing called BigQuery, and then there's also this thing called Snowflake. And mm -hmm. Snowflake was introduced in Instacart already. Yeah. So it was available to us to use, and and this is uh, data engineering was about to switch over to it. Um, and so I talked with Nick a little bit about it, and he gave me an account on it, and I started playing around with it, and. I realized that we could totally recompute our uh, our out the output of our system using Snowflake because it was able to store all the raw information that we, that we needed it to. It was uh, powerful enough to actually query on that information and 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 come with with an output uh, of the catalog system like the, the complete output. Um, when I uh, the proof of concept stuff that I did for the product system was that you know we could do that within about five minutes. Uh, so. Uh, we can rebuild our um, entire catalog like in, in just five yeah. minutes. So one, one complaint yeah. that I've heard about these, you know, uh, recompute systems is that they take a long time. Yeah. And I think that's true because, you know, particularly when people are just using MapReduce, there's a bunch of materializations that get persisted to disk and they can be a little bit slow. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to scale, uh, you know, quickly your cluster. Um, this is the type of thing that, that Snowflake handles pretty well because they've separated uh, compute from the storage. Okay. And the compute can actually, the clusters can be scaled sort of ad hoc. It, yeah. It, if you need to, you can just give yourself more power. Uh, and the way it works is that the data is actually stored in these micro partitions that are small enough that they can, uh, that the data is already distributed. Okay. Uh, pretty granularly. So you can scale horizontally like a Yeah, w without the need you... for the system to sort of reshard data in a way that you have to wait around uh, mm -hmm. for a long time. Now, that's that's kind of interesting because, you know, if, if we determine that we don't have enough compute power for the stuff that we're doing, we can sort of just add more. But 
it also turns out that even without that, the, the, the snowflake processing is, is exceptionally fast. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and so, and so what, what is new pipeline is you basically just like have the like series of queries that like run on the snow snowflake yeah. cluster and so the, uh yeah you, so the important things uh, about that are are basically one important part is to capture raw data so when we get data from um, retailers and when we get data from uh, other providers of product data for example mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we capture that data in as raw a format as we can in sort of an append only mm -hmm. uh, table uh, or set of tables and the reason for that is that we want to be able to time travel in our data so that we can recompute at a given time so let's say that we, we uh, have data Sunday at midnight we want to be able to run our calculations on the data at Sunday at midnight over and over again so that we can do stuff like run a build and then uh, make a change to our code and run another build and see what the difference was between the first build and the second one just based on the changes to the code and not actually to the source the, data itself. So yeah. what you were trying to solve with this comparison? Yeah, so uh, we're trying to solve for the ability to do refactorings uh, first, so mm -hmm. uh, we can refactor the code and end up with the same result in the build, then, we real then we'll know that we haven't introduced any uh, regressions. That's pretty, you can be pretty sure about that because uh, the output of the system, at least on the product level, is uh, I think something like 65 million product, uh, retailer product attributes. So, and, and you know, so you, every like single one of the scenario, million unit yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So every single one of uh, the uh, paths through our code is touched by the calculation that comes out the other end because it's everything in our catalog. It's it, it, so it's the retailers that are that have full control over the data. It's the ones that don't have full control. Every one of them has used some tool or operations has used some tool uh, to, to affect the data. And so there's just a tremendous amount of variance in the source data and in the way that the output data is calculated. So that if you make a change and you end up with the same results, you can be pretty certain that you haven't introduced any kind of logical regression. Um, so that's, that's one way that you would use it. Another way would be if you're introducing a new feature. Uh, so for example, we've been doing a thing called catalog versioning where mm -hmm. retailers can send us brand new inventory data uh, because they have merged with another retailer. Okay. So they're switching over to the parent retailer's inventory system and the parent retailer uses totally different codes for the same stuff. Uh, so. Currently, sure. that, that, that that was a difficult problem to, to deal with because yeah. we have this this system where we can't simply uh, create a branch and uh, then have a bunch of code on that branch and then run a rebuild with the code in the branch and see whether the intended effect happened or not. What we have to actually do is actually run it, uh, you know, through the production system. Mm -hmm in order to see, you know, we, we put a bunch of unit tests, we do unit tests, we do integration mm -hmm. tests, we run on staging, we do all these things to ensure that we're going to have a uh, the right result. But still, there's no test like a production test when it comes to this because our systems are so 
large and complicated that we need to make sure that it flows through uh, the, the, our distributed system correctly and that mm -hmm. things show up as expected. So it's a, there's a lot of testing involved in that. Um, in the new model, we would be able to, uh, you know, make a code change, yeah. and then uh, and then see what the difference was in the output and and uh, see whether that difference met our expectations or not. Because you can. So another thing that's mm -hmm. amazing about Snowflake is that so e each one of these builds creates 65 million retailer product attributes. Okay. Um, you can compare one build to another, you can compare those 65 million attributes in about six seconds. So uh, you can just run a query and it'll show you all the attributes that are different across all of the uh, uh, the data. So that's... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's impressive feats, yeah. yeah. Uh, so are, are, are you already like working on this or is it like already like being like... Uh, yeah used right now like what's what the state of this you know yeah so the approach. items team uh which does the retailer file processing is in the middle of uh of standing the system up and is having uh good results with that uh the products team we have a proof of concept that that i did on it and we're now breaking that out into a project plan and we're going to be moving forward with it part of uh, Part of the reason why we're staging it as like a, a like kind of a rollout across the teams is because we're also introducing additional new technologies along with this. So one thing that we're introducing is Airflow uh, as our uh, task management system, as mm -hmm. opposed to we've been using Sidekick for yeah. for Ruby. Uh, so Air why are you switching to uh, why are you switching away from the Sidekick? Yeah, so this new system, it will be written largely in Python for the job system. But uh, the other thing that's, <clears throat> that's true is that it's the, the, the Python that's in the system will be a lot less than the Ruby code that we currently have because mostly what we're doing is relying on SQL and a few very carefully selected user-defined functions that run in Snowflake. So the orchestration of the uh, queries that are being run on Snowflake is tasks that are written in Python that are uh, that, that use uh, Airflow, and that's because the, the you know Python and Airflow uh, are sort of the de facto way of doing ETL-ish type of work in, in the Python these lines, days. Yeah. In, uh, in, in data data engineering, generally speaking, like if okay. you're writing an ETL, uh, then uh, it's much more common to do that in Python than it is to do it in Ruby. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, we actually, in my previous company, we was also using Python for all the ETL stuff. We weren't quite using uh, Airflow. We had like our homegrown uh, like uh, started and then we I think migrate to Luigi which is like like uh -huh. an uh, airflow yeah um, but um, yeah so so what's your experience with airflow so far very minimal for myself yeah uh, so uh, Alex has been working with it and it seems to be working well for him um, he's also we're, we're also using some of the new infrastructure for this mm -hmm. too so uh, what is that yeah so infra has a thing called NXT yeah next and what that is is a, uh, a system that is more similar to sort of traditional traditional Docker. Mm -hmm. So for your project, you'll have a, a Docker file, and 
uh, when you deploy, it will look at the Docker file, see if it needs to install any additional uh, stuff into your Docker build, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then deploy it uh, in sort of the standard Docker on orchestration platform mm -hmm. way of doing stuff. Our, our current system, the way it works is that, you know, you when you do a deploy, it uh, it runs a salt script, and the salt script sees whether it needs to install anything or not, and then uh, we'll we'll pull that stuff down. And the the trouble with that is that you know it will potentially if the, the, depending on what's in the base image, mm -hmm. it will potentially need to install stuff over and over and over again. And that's one thing that the Docker does a really good job of. Yeah, it's because it's caches caching the it. Yeah, step yep. of the Docker up to the point where you didn't have a change. In exactly. Only, like the next step is you actually change it. Yeah. Would be the new step. Yeah, that's, that's so apparently deploys mm -hmm. with this are extremely fast now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I've heard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, nice. Yeah, um, so, um, but that's like number of like things. Uh, right now it's just like the, the snowflake and mm -hmm. uh, like Airflow and just like the running task queue and like so. What has a like what other um. Uh, tools that like you really like excited about like using. Or maybe excited about, but not yet using or again want to use. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the big thing in front yeah. of us right now is is Snowflake and uh, and Airflow. Those are the big, I would say, they're disruptive technologies for uh, for the catalog team because so much of the systems that we have in place will be replaced by them, and you know, uh, Snow Snowflake is. is very very interesting because you know we have faults in our current system where things uh, things fail like events fail to propagate or, or whatever mm -hmm. uh, and that causes actual faults in our data but when there are faults in snowflake the, you know the the underlying system is is fault tolerant to all sorts of problems uh with the data and so when we run these i mean it's, it sounds kind of silly right but when i run a query on snowflake I expect to get the same results every time, right? And I expect okay. the results to be complete. Uh, and that, that's simply not something that, that happens in our current catalog systems because, okay. you know, with the same data that goes into our system, it has to work its way through six systems and it has to, every event has to propagate exactly correctly for things to work and there are race conditions. There's a there's a, just a whole bunch of non-determinism in our current system, and there's that non-determinism and uh, and lack of fault tolerance are, are not something that that is in Snowflake. So basically, like I'm really the, the thing I'm excited about right now is, is Snowflake's Snowflake, yeah. ability to do the distributed computing that we have been wanting to do on our data for a long time, but haven't had uh, the ability to do up until now. And using simple languages, SQL, yeah, versus anything else, because. Yeah, and they do they do have a, what are called uh, user-defined functions uh, as well that you can write JavaScript for. Our thought is that we should try to minimize that as much as possible because it's uh, an area of additional complexity. If we can describe our data as uh, transformations, you know, uh, that's preferable to uh, describing it imperatively in code. Um, so. 
anything that we can do in SQL that makes sense to do in SQL, we want to do in SQL, and then anything that we are unable to do in SQL, then we'll attempt to do in the, these user-defined functions. Right, but as far as I understand, you can like really eager to move a lot of things that you traditionally don't do in SQL, but now you will be able to. Yeah. Right? Well, it, so, I mean, at a high level, traditionally, you haven't used your data warehouse to do the uh, uh, the, the transformation itself, right? So the, the the idea was that there was an ETL, right? You would extract and transform and then load, but now uh, the, the idea is that you extract and load the data and then you transform it inside the data warehouse because the data warehouse is so powerful at this point. So. Okay, go ahead. So rather than uh, deciding what data should be in your data warehouse, you put all of your data in, and then, or, or you know, yeah, like all of, yeah, you you put your data in, and then you make decisions about how you want to use it after the fact. Okay, and and basically, if you need something new, you can always run like another SQL statement and get new tables mm -hmm. right in your uh, data warehouse and like get mm -hmm. new stuff. Yeah, the, 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 this is like uh, yeah the. I hear like a lot of um, um, responses on Snowflake is that they've been like disruptive and like uh, one more example of like the the thing that you might do is basically if you have like the log of the geolocations mm -hmm. in your database you can you can now correlate geolocations to geolocations and just play in SQL and like run it on like say tremendous we have like millions of users mm -hmm. like like hundreds of thousands of shoppers go. Uh, in the database, so like if if we want to see like how shoppers like move like relative to each other, we can find the fraud when like for instance, like it was like one person moving and pretending to be like dozen different shoppers at the same time, which totally wasn't possible to do before. But right now, since the snowflake is so powerful, and actually can do computation like that. How we can do it? It's a strange thing to think about, but Snowflake is is one is a great place to put a distributed log of information. So in some ways, it's a, it can be a little bit like uh, Kafka or something else mm -hmm. where you just put a log of information. And the reason is that uh, if you import your data in batches, it takes those batches and it turns them into columnar data and then uh, micro partitions of data that then those and persists on S3. Mm -hmm. And by default, all of this stuff is compressed. Uh, and uh, it, when it's stored on S3, it's cheap to mm -hmm. store. So you have uh, the import, uh, but then, then it just kind of sits there cold. So it, uh, Snowflake stores this data in situ on S3, and you're able to query it after the fact. So you could, you could store, you know, hundreds of billions of trillions of records in uh, in Snowflake like very cheaply because mm -hmm. it's just compressed files that sit on S3 and then uh, if you decided that you needed some of that data uh, you would be able to query it. Uh, so, so you cluster the data on whatever you think is an important uh, attribute to cluster on and soon they'll also have uh, something called materialized views which are actually uh, maintained for you as a like when you do an insert, it will put it into both your uh, your your current table and also the materialized view, uh, maintained in cluster ordering mm -hmm. on that. So, uh, so you'll be able to look stuff up that way as well. So I think it, it, it's very interesting uh, considering it as a storage of a tremendous amount of log data that you can then use for some other purpose after the fact. In fact, we're like. 
we're, st we're storing large amounts of data in there now. Like we're taking all of the data that's in Elasticsearch and mm -hmm. we're putting it back into uh, uh, Snowflake. Uh, oh, because it's even faster day. to do, faster to access it than uh, from uh, Snowflake than from Elasticsearch? Uh, more for analytical purposes. So so Elasticsearch is really good for, you know, uh, for searching stuff and yeah. also for, uh, for sort of a key value uh, lookup like we're doing for the storefront. Um, but for analytical purposes, having this information in uh, in Snowflake allows us to, uh, you know, do comparisons against. For example, we could say, show me all the information that a retailer sent us and compare it against what's in Elasticsearch uh, in the same at the same time frame and you know join basically. And, oh yeah, you think we have a copy of the Elasticsearch? You have a copy of the Elasticsearch okay. data. Yeah, okay. yeah. So we can then see what doesn't match up, for example. See if there were issues with our processing. Yeah, that, that that that's really powerful and basically like as we said before, it's like one more unit test. Yeah. Which has like just a lot of data points to. Yeah. To run. Um. Yeah, that's uh. Uh. That yeah, that's uh. That, that that's intense uh, discussion about Snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's all good. Um. Um. Let's um. Uh, Let's just like switch gears a little bit on like more like kind of um, tools that you may be using on your on your laptop. So yeah, sure. what's like what's your like like typical day like look like? So what what do you use like as your IDE and shell and like maybe like other tools like uh the 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 yeah. every day. So uh, I I don't use anything special for my shell. I use uh, Bash, but I do use Vim as my IDE and have that pretty tweaked out. <laughs> like nerd tree and all the like oh, plugins, yeah. nerd tree, uh, all the plugins. The the one that I I've been really very happy with recently is a plugin called FZF in Vim. Uh, what does it's it do? basically like Control P. Uh, so it's a file find, fuzzy file finder. Okay. Um, but it's it's extended to also help you do fuzzy buffer finding, fuzzy git commit finding, fuzzy just basically so fu basically fuzzy finding, finding. yeah all the all the scopes yeah exactly okay uh, so that that works uh, pretty well uh, the other thing that I have is and this is something that I don't think many people at Instacart have and I haven't open sourced it yet but uh, I think it's an interesting idea which is basically I've got this uh, platform that I call Cubist, and, and what it is is a way of basically doing like feature development. Um, so a given feature that we, like like the catalog versioning thing I, mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier today, that feature is actually spanned across probably three or four projects in catalog. And, okay. Uh, and so w w when you say, I want to think about the catalog versioning project, the question is like, where's the code for that? Well, it's, it's actually in four different projects and there's a bunch of files associated with it. And, uh, and so uh, to jump into the catalog versioning project, it's a little bit unclear how you even do that. Um, okay, so how Cubist helps with that? Yeah, so what Cubist is, is it's a, it's a set of, basically it's, a, it's, it's an additional folder that gets added to your project that you just keep out of version control. And it's a set of, it maintains a set of sim links that link to the files that are associated with uh, alternative views on your project. So in this case, there might be like 20 sim links that sim link to the 20 files that are associated with 
the versioning project and they point to all the different uh, files in all the different projects. Uh, okay. And so you can you can basically browse them as a set of yeah. files, but they really have like very vast different locations. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. And the other thing that's interesting about that then is that you can put all of your specs in there as well. And when you want to run your specs that are associated with a feature like catalog versioning, then you, uh, so I have a, a, a test runner that I have that is aware of uh, Cubist and what it can do is if you if you happen to run it in a Cubist folder, it, it will run all the specs okay. that are associated with the catalog versioning project. So that tends to be pretty good because uh, failures uh, seem to have an affinity, right? So yeah. if you if you break something in one place associated with the code around a feature, oftentimes you'll break it in another place in another project. And so to get that feedback quickly, as opposed to after pushing to CI, is really helpful. Right. Um, I think I think that actually should be version controlled. So like if you uh, created the folder for this particular project, like yeah. it, it's very likely that like another person in the team will have like very great benefit of this and like he can actually run the same set of specs sure. on his machine. Like sure. yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm I'm really excited if you ever decide to open source it. Yeah, yeah. Like, well yeah. so let me paint a little bit more of a picture for you for this because I think it's pretty cool. Um if you pick a file, okay. you can tell Cubist to find you the associated files with it. And the way it does that is it goes back through Git and it finds files that were changed in the same commits as the file that you're asking it about. And so then if you add that second file, like you, it'll give you a list of files that in ranked order. Mm -hmm. And so if you add the second file, and then say, now find me more files. It'll find files that are better associated, better associated until you end up with all the files that describe this feature. So that makes it really helpful for bootstrapping when you first are trying to create an alternative view on a project. Yeah, so that's like, you don't, you don't need to know, you can discover features which basically was worked as the features, even though they, it's not strictly speaking like there yeah. exists in yeah. some other view. You yeah, because like, otherwise yeah. the overhead of, of finding that stuff is, is pretty difficult. So for example, we have a, a thing called the Mobile Photo Studio, right? Mm -hmm. The Mobile Photo Studio is where somebody wanders around and takes pictures in, uh, in a store, and that becomes one of our product sources. So it provides images, and it can provide a little bit of product data. Um, but there's there's stuff associated with this, right? So when we get those uh, images, we all we send them off to outsourcing in Asia to clean up the images and and send the data back to us. And so there's an SFTP uh, you know drop job. There's a bunch of services about pulling the stuff back and the promotion of the of this source as a you know a valid source. And so there's every one of these little features when you go you know we, we still have uh, a lot of code in our catalog mm -hmm. system that is in the catalog project but there's like but it's entwined with everything else in our system and so uh, when I when I tried to bootstrap that project to understand how it worked and where the stuff gets sent out and stuff I uh, I found like 30 files associated with uh, with Mobile Photo Studio, actually. Mm -hmm. and, and to do that, 
manually uh, <laughs> takes a long time. But if you have a, a system that helps you discover those files that are associated with the project, then uh, it doesn't take nearly as much time. So my idea with this thing is that we would have uh, not only um, uh, projects that, that uh, where, where you have views in, in, into you know basically subsystems within your code, but also you could then uh, say that you have upstream and downstream subsystems. Like if there's any kind of a directional flow of, of this data, then uh, you you would be able to say, hey, run the specs for my system and downstream systems, or you know, run the specs, you know, run everything that's touched by where this this file happens to be in the overall stream of of, uh, of work that's done. So it's like it's it's meta structure on top of your code base, which yeah, uh, yeah, which exactly. kind of gives you like the 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 orthogonal view to the the code organization. That exactly. Is, yeah. Uh, that is normally forced by frameworks and stuff to more sane views, pretty much what like Bob, uh, Uncle Bob always yeah, yeah. pushes that like you, you, you should have your features at the top level stuff. So yeah. this way you can have features at the top level stuff. So like you kind of yeah. come into the clean uh, code and clean architecture from like, uh, but you, can, you can bring clean architecture to like any code base by just like having a tool. Right, but, but and, and here's what's interesting about that. The, the, tr the reason why we don't structure stuff as features uh, when doing Rails projects yeah. here is because that's just not the way that things are done in Rails, right? Yeah. The way that things are done is that you put stuff into the models directory, you put it into the services directory, you put it into, you know, the admin tools yeah. would be in the in the in whatever the web uh, stuff is, so, yeah. uh, you know, your CSS, your other stuff. Um, and... And so there, it's kind of expected that that's how Rails is done. And, and I think that's actually totally cool. I think that this orthogonal view, as you put it, is actually, it's supplementary it, because you can either use it or not use it, um, but you won't affect other people's ability to do work because they're expecting things to be in, in the folders that they're actually in. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh... I think that's amazing. I'm, yeah, now I'm really eager to see this. <laughs> yeah, I I can do like one of the like uh, yeah. lab uh, rest to actually is, try that. <laughs> the thing of it is that I mean I know I talked about Snowflake yeah. in depth before, but the, the 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 trouble is that was an interesting idea before Snowflake, and now Snowflake replaces so much stuff that this is we're still going to need something like the uh, like that. You mm -hmm. know, if you want to view something as as features and and the other thing is that cubist doesn't care about whether something is a feature or you basically any sort of logical grouping of of files um uh will work, yeah, it will work. and it's probably also kind of language agnostic up to like the running totally, test totally right? language so agnostic, like if, yeah. if you would have yeah. like another runner for say python Yep. Uh, that that will be totally fine. Like yeah. Go for the sake. Yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> so Cubis itself is only about providing the names of those files to a runner, and then the, the runner uh, can actually run them. Yeah. So. Yeah. This is. Uh, yeah. I, I. Yeah. I'm glad we uh, we talked about this because yeah. this is like. Uh, 
this is like a gem that like no one knows about and like making you a super superpowers hero. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have like any other like uh, cool tools at your disposal that like no one uh, know about? Oh, actually, I know like one more, right? So like you you, you, you showed me you showed me your wiki. Like do you oh, want to yeah. talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the wiki is cool. Uh, so the idea with the wiki is that. Um, Basically, I, I just wanted to be able to, so I wanted to have a place to put a bunch of information, kind mm -hmm. of like an Evernote thing, I yeah. guess, uh, uh, but I had some ideas about how I wanted to actually use it, and one thing that I wanted to uh, push really hard on was tagging pages and, and having, um, uh, like, tag discovery be, be top-notch, so... Mm -hmm. If you typically tag something with video, then here are all the other tags that, that always get tagged with video, and, and here are the top tags. And so I, I really wanted to end up with um, things being tagged sort of uh, very well, I, mm -hmm. I, I guess. Uh, and, and, and there's one other thing in the wiki that I, I think is interesting, which is um, it's... Uh, it sounds so nerdy. There's a, there's a thing called labeled section transclusion, and, and what's what, that? Yeah, what that is is being able to take a section in a page and give it a label, and then allow for it to be transcluded into another page. And so uh, the re the reason why this is interesting is because you can uh, let's say that you watch a video. Okay. And you say, okay, I'm going to make a page about this video. This is an awesome <coughs> video on Kubernetes that I that I watched. Okay. And at minute uh, 40, 45 minutes, there the, the guy said something really interesting about like how you could deal with uh, how how you can make something fault tolerant, right? So like, oh, okay, this is this is an interesting quote on fault tolerance, and so you so you quote it and you put it into your page, and then you label that as fault, fault tolerance, tolerance in Kubernetes yeah. or whatever, right? Then if you have another page that's called fault tolerance, you can transclude that chunk of data into your you fault tolerance it. page and then that fault tolerance page becomes just a bunch of quotes uh from other pages that are all about fault tolerance how different from just like searching by a tag yeah so uh it's it's different because you can on on the page that it's included in you can put a bunch of stuff around it right so so it, i don't know if you ever you, you read like um you read blog posts, right, where somebody says a bunch of stuff and then they include a pull quote, right? Yeah. And then they say some more stuff and they include yeah. another pull quote from yeah. from some other yeah. source. And, 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 and sometimes they include a paragraph, right, uh, that, that talks about it and, and gives context and color to the, uh, to, to the article that they've written. That's what this is. Okay. It's, it, it allows you a mechanism to, to put all that stuff into another page and then track back to where it came from. And then also, if you make alterations at, at the source location, those just show up automatically in the uh, in, in the destination location. Okay. So one thing that I've used this for is I uh, I was really interested in um, uh, data data engineering stuff and distributed systems, yeah. and and so I've I've watched a bunch of talks on this and and read a bunch of papers and and read this book, the designing. Uh, data intensive applications and for each of those things that I consumed I have a separate page in my wiki uh, and, and I put a bunch of quotes in them that, that I think are interesting and then I label those quotes and then I have a glossary that I that I uh, pull that information over into so for example uh, you know one thing that I thought was particularly interesting was like uh, uh, 
lineage information or context propagation. Uh, so like if you have derived data, like how did you how did you get it to be derived like that? What were the steps that led to it so that you can uh, look at a piece of derived data and figure out uh, what led to it? Mean. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so derived data is an interesting concept. So in the glossary, there's like 10 quotes under derived data that point back to the talks that they came from and uh, and allow you to just go back to the talk and see what else was talked about in that talk. So you basically have derived data on derived data. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Totally. Uh, yeah, this, is, is your wiki open sourced? Because I saw that you have like a it website. Is, it is, it. but I wouldn't recommend it to anybody at this point. So, uh, be, because the underlying data structure is not great, it just stores stuff in a bunch of documents. Uh, and uh, I've realized that. So, so I created this thing like three years ago, and I've realized since then that you know having sort of a traditional database underneath would be a really good idea for consistency and uh, you know transactions around updates and stuff like that but um, yeah so I, I wouldn't recommend using the thing that I use all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, I think like uh, from your um, from until the most uh, valuable part is probably your data like your mind's dump that you end yeah. up having there like for three years yeah, that, yeah. Is, that part actually looks well. That's the part. So, so one thing that I showed you before was the the ability to publish from this thing. So I have the wiki that's a dynamic website. It's written in Ruby, and 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 then I have a you know a, a simple command line script that reads from that and publishes to a static website uh, that then anybody can read. Uh, and and so what's interesting about that is I can limit the number of pages that get published, and so I just tag them in a certain way if I want them to actually be published. And mm -hmm. um, and so I publish a lot of stuff out uh, on those sites. Like any, basically any anything that I watch, like a, a thing on distributed systems, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll take my notes and then I'll publish them, and I'll I'll connect them up to the glossary so that the glossary is the one unified place where you can see all these concepts and see names for them and then dig into the source material if you happen to be interested. So, so we should promote your glossary as just like their nice uh, starting point to learn distributed systems and like... Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah we could do that. Yeah, um, cool. So that's that's actually a very good gateway uh, as to like where you uh, store the new things that you learn. How do you discover new things that you learn? Like what's your like go-to websites and like or like do you like how yeah. how did you find like the last book that you read or like how how do you how do you like what's your like overall approach to learning yeah uh so uh there's only a, there's a limited number of things that i'm actually trying to learn uh, okay and it's it's pretty focused um and it, it it's depends on circumstance a little bit. So I thought that I wanted to learn machine learning because I thought the catalog would benefit from it uh, early last year. And so I started trying to learn everything that I could about machine learning. But in the process, that was when we, when I discovered that like machine learning depends on clean data. It really likes having a good log of facts um, yeah. to, to work with. And I realized that, that like basically we didn't have the prerequisite to using machine learning effectively in catalog because we didn't have the, the raw fat we didn't have clean good data uh, yeah. with uh, 
with good lineage and uh, and clear inputs and append only raw data that we could uh, ascribe to, uh, you know, a provider. Yeah. So then I was like, well, okay, I guess the problem isn't machine learning. The problem is uh, uh, data engineering. Yeah. <laughs> And so uh, I shifted over to data engineering and uh, trying to learn data engineering instead. So it's driven by problems that we have at Instacart. You know, Catalog has some problems um, mm -hmm. that, that, that we're trying to address. Um, uh, but then, like, uh, you know, when I commute, I basically, I have a long commute. And so whenever I'm commuting up in the morning, I, I listen to a talk on something. So typically I'll get like 40 minutes of, of some talk on some subject. So in a given week, I'd, I'd uh, probably listen to uh, at least three talks on a variety of subjects. Mm -hmm. That's a, that gives you a really nice high level uh, mm -hmm. uh, understanding of, of the subject, knowing which talks to actually uh, uh, look at. That's, like, that's something that I like hit up guys like you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, hey, what's interesting? I, I want to know. Uh, and so uh, I like to tell people about talks that I think were interesting, and I really like to hear about talks that people think are interesting. Um, because it's, that's such a good gateway, right, to learning about a subject. It's a, you have a high-level overview. It gives you an intuition for the material, and then you can dive in. And find, well. like, the books or articles. Yeah. So, like, papers mentioned in there, like, like referenced in other texts. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense, because... Uh, Actually, that's a very good like way to put it. Yeah, you need like initial intuition, like like where to go from. Yeah. Yeah, you need some starting point and like just a little bit of direction. That's what I, I guess like that's high level talks are very good at because like you 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 just listen, you don't need to read something of yeah. that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Th this is uh. Uh. Yeah. Th this is good. So, what was the the last? Yeah, uh, you. I think you mentioned it. Right? So, what was the last book that you really liked? It was like the data-driven. Yeah, yeah. So there's a book called uh, "Designing Data-Intensive Applications." Uh, uh, it's a basically a book on dis I would say distributed systems and database design. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's really big. <laughs> it's uh, it it it. Uh, it has a whole lot of concepts in it, and uh, I think they're important concepts for a, a, a data-driven team like the like the catalog team. Um, it was good. I had to I had to really work to, to work my way through it because um, it's it's pretty dense material. Mm -hmm. uh, you recommended a book to me yeah. called Distributed Systems, which I'm having. Uh, so I actually I finished the I, I finished the data intensive applications book. The uh, distributed systems book. I'm I'm having a, a hard time working my way through, but I am slowly doing it. I, I so I'm like I'm goal driven, right? So yeah. like the, the like this is this is a goal for me to read that book. But it's gonna it's gonna take a while. Yeah, it it has very low level uh, algorithms and yeah. like uh, problems described, which normally like if you're using Snowflake, you don't have any of these problems already. It's like the right. guys they solved have, everything they have for the you. Problems. Yeah. yeah, I think and that's really is, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of talks yeah. that are really interesting, uh, one one of the so the Snowflake metadata database is written in a in a thing called the Founda Foundation DB. Yeah. And there's a really interesting talk about the simulation, uh, like how how the how the Foundation DB guys use simulation to uh, to test Foundation DB. So like, can can you just uh, like in uh, layman terms describe like what is that? 
Yeah, so uh, FoundationDB is a, a database that's basically like kind of like, a, I think it's a key value store. Um, and, but yeah. the idea is that this is uh, a uh, store that has uh, ACID uh, properties uh, and uh, tr transactions, but um, is works with, uh, it's, a, it's a distributed system, has a, a, a several nodes. And the idea is that this is supposed to be sort of a rock solid key value store that despite node failures uh, or latency or other problems will you'll always get uh, the right the right yeah. result mm -hmm. yeah and so uh, y y you know there's things called like there's a thing called the Jepson test right which you can run against a distributed system which will do stuff like uh, <coughs> cause uh, partition failures. failures partition, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, network partitioning and all that stuff right uh, but these guys had the uh, insight that um, that this was basically like a hard problem that they needed to solve uh, from the get-go, that you can't sort of uh, paper on uh, fault tolerance of this type. And so what they did first was they built themselves a uh, the ability to do simulation testing on their uh, on the database. And so uh, the only way that you can do that testing effectively is to have determinism in in the running of the system and so w w what they did was they basically took a, what's a multi-threaded application that has lots of different uh, uh, systems that, that work on it and and they, uh, they they turned it into a deterministic uh, system and what w then for, for for testing purposes yeah and then, what they did was they uh, gave themselves the ability to introduce faults deterministically and randomly. So this is, sounds totally nuts, but but what it means is basically that for their test runs, they would create a plan. So they would use randomness to generate the plan. So they would ha have a random seed, but then that seed would generate the plan that would say for this test run, how much latency should there be for uh, a given uh, node, or which nodes should fail, or you know, just a, a bunch of different stuff like that. And so, when they ran the actual test, these faults were put into the system deterministically. So, for example, let's say let's say that uh, three nodes fail, that, and that's a randomly chosen number of nodes, but that's part of the plan for the run. When it runs. Uh, those three nodes fail every single time as part of this one test. Okay. So if there's a problem that shows up in the database because of those three nodes failing, they'll be able to debug it because it always fa fails in the same way because it's because deterministic. It's deterministic and you can just repeat the test with the same seat and get the same result. And exactly. Make sure that like after you fix it, it's not failing anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, you can decide, uh, so the, the type of test that they would do would, would be that they would, uh, they would take some data and they would have the data uh, create a ring of, uh, of nodes where each node, in, this is a table where there's a node and a pointer and the mm -hmm. pointer points to the next node and the next okay. node. And so if you, if you read the entire table, there is a ring that's created from the nodes and the, the ring is, I don't know, let's call it like a, a hundred, there are a hundred nodes in this ring, okay. right? Then what they did was they uh, would run, I think it was like 14,000 transactions per second uh, at this 
uh, where each transaction would maintain the uh, the structure, the overall structure of the nodes, but it would replace one node pointing to another and another node pointing to another, such that at the end of the transaction, the cycle was still the in cycle, place yeah. and the same length as it was before. But they would be running like 14,000 of these transactions concurrently while the simulation was also breaking everything. So uh, they would have the simulation breaking the network and they would have the simulation uh, like, uh, pretend like an operator accidentally changed the IP addresses of two machines, like all sorts of chaos happening mm -hmm. while at the same time uh, doing 14,000 transactions per second. And then at the end, there was one invariant test which said, hey, is there still, you know, a, a cycle of rings that's that's a hundred uh, nodes long? Yeah. If so, then all right, that worked, you know. And then off to the next test. And so, uh, by throwing, you can throw a lot of computer horsepower at running these simulation tests. Um, so they ran Jepson on this as well, and they weren't able to find any faults in it. And they also have a, an actual cluster of machines that um, that they use for this uh, for for testing real world. Uh, which have like network controlled power switches or whatever where they basically can kill uh, actual nodes and the only problems that they ever discovered with using the real world uh, tests were uh, There was a bug in the Linux kernel that they found and they also found a bug in a Paxos implementation uh, uh, in, in Zookeeper um, mm -hmm. And they realized that at that time they're like, oh wow We can't really rely on Zookeeper because Zookeeper is not inside the simulation framework and so therefore it's going to have it can potentially have these bugs introduced and then on production our system is going to not appear to work to people because there's a the, you know there's a bug, bug in Zookeeper. Outside, yeah so they move the paxos implementation inside of uh foundation, foundation db so that they could use the simulation framework to test it okay so they have like probably even better implementation of Faxes than the Cooper does. Yeah, exactly. This is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm actually uh, surprised that they're using Faxes versus new like Craft or like yeah yeah. Some other I don't know why uh, they would. Yeah, but maybe they started before Raft became like. That's, it, yeah, it's like it's, it's, it's yeah. became like really popular like when like a few years and uh, correct me if I'm wrong but like the Kubernetes using ETCD. Yeah. It's actually using Raft That's right, yeah. as, a, as a protocol, yeah. which is uh, another uh, cool <laughs> set of technologies that everyone yeah, I guess we're not going to talk about that yeah, today. Uh, yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it for the next um, time. So um, I think this is a like, really great conversation. Where can people find you online if they want to? Yeah, so uh, you should go check out my Atlas uh, profile because I keep that up to date with uh, stuff about myself and uh, things that I think are interesting and uh, it's the place that I go look up other people in the company if I see their face and I don't know their name or I know their name and not their face like I, I, yeah. I check that out for other people so I'd yeah. be very excited if other people kind of put their interests in into the, their Atlas Updates Atlas, well. yeah. yeah. That, that I'm totally on the same page with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's very useful and very undervalued under tool for yeah. us right now. Um, and do you have like Twitter or like uh, do do post on Medium or something? Uh, no, I, all I have is my wiki. Okay. <laughs> so I'll, <laughs> so I'll, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, put it, we can put it in the show notes. The, yeah. The, the, uh, the, arc, the data 
uh, the data architecture stuff. Uh, for the wiki, yeah, perfect. Um, thank you, Gordon. I think that was fantastic. And like, I'm eager to do like one more session with you maybe later on the Kubernetes. <laughs> oh yeah, let's do it. That'd be fun. Thank you. Know your carrots.